for the first uh, question for the for the whole panel, and some of you already you know, maybe discussed it more than others, but elaborate on the view that you're representing, how they understand the text in Romans 11, and and that'll probably usher us into other questions. Tim, do you want to start? Sure. So, <clears throat> for the amillennial, right, just as a refresher, the church is the Israel of God. And so we talked about that for in Amos 9 and Acts 15, but specifically in Romans 11, um, one thing that you have to look at is starting in verse 17. There's this whole analogy of an olive tree and branches being broken off and added in. And I think it just might be helpful if we just read it really quick so that we're all on the same page. So Romans 11, starting in verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, and the you there is the Gentiles, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They are broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note that the kindness of the, and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And so how I would read that is that the Gentiles have been grafted into the one olive tree, right? It is one tree, not two. And we see in the Old Testament this picture of Israel being portrayed as an olive tree, flourishing under the Lord's love and care, right? And so this is a picture of God's people that goes back to the Old Testament. And we see here that the unbelieving Jews have been cut off and the Gentiles, which are called contrary to nature, have been grafted into this olive tree. So what you notice is that the olive tree isn't destroyed and then a new tree, not necessarily two people, two peoples of God, that the Gentiles have been grafted into that one people of God throughout all the ages. And so that would be the, the high level overview of Romans 11. Anything to add? I think uh, uh, one thing that we talked about during the break a little bit is the, it's not quite a difference between pre, post, and amil on the future inclusion of ethnic Israel into the salvation of God. For instance, there are both amils and postmills who would agree with Dave that there's this future coming regeneration of Israel where they, where they will once again turn in faith towards God and believe on him kind of in a mass number. Uh, postmills who would hold that would usually say that's associated with right before the return of Christ. Uh, amils would say roughly the same kind of thing. So this is not necessarily a dividing line issue between those groups. But um, the, the question, I think Dave's the only one here who's advocating for the view that Israel and uh, the church are to be, in some sense, kept distinct. Is that fair in terms of promise? In, a fair, in some sense, yes. Yeah, yeah. yes. Not in a total sense, because you mentioned salvation is common between them and things like that. Um, I, if I was going to throw my hat into the ring on the Romans uh, 11 text, how do we understand the use of the term Israel? Is it referring to ethnic Israel? Um, I think something Paul is doing in Romans 9, 10, 11, he's answering the apologetic question, how can we trust God's promises, given the fact that so many Jews have rejected the promises of God, rejected their Messiah, uh, how, are, how are these promises worth for the Gentiles to believe in if the Jews don't believe them? And I think something, it's interesting, Paul starts it with, and this is in Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 6. He says, But it is not as though as the word, that the word of God has failed, for not all descended from Israel belong to Israel. So not all who are ethnically Israel are Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but, quote, it is through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as his offspring. So then he goes on to address how do we understand Israel and the true Israel? The true Israel is not just ethnically the offspring of Abraham. It is those who are by faith engrafted into Abraham. So that there is Israel, the let's say the descendants ethnically of Abraham, but then there's the true Israel, which is 
both ethnic descendants who believed in their Messiah and also the Gentiles who have now been engrafted in because they're part of the believing people of God. And I think something that is a little bit of a misconception in the Old Testament, uh, probably not something we have a ton of time to get into, but I think there is a common conception even today that Israel in the Old Testament was primarily an ethnic people distinct from the peoples around them. And that by and large continues in the New Testament. And that's something that we still long for, that there's an ethnic people who are waiting to return to their, their savior. But I think in the Old Testament, Israel is not primarily an ethnic people so much as Israel is marked off as a believing people. Meaning Israel is not primarily marked by their ethnicity so much as by their faith in Yahweh. So you have people engrafted into Israel from the Canaanites. You have Rahab, you have Ruth, you have many who are engrafted, Uzziah the Hittite, uh, Caleb and Joshua who go to examine the promised land. Caleb is not an Israelite by ethnic descent, but he's engrafted into the Israelite people. So the Israelites are not primarily an ethnically distinct people from the Canaanites or from others. They're primarily a believing people marked off in their faith in Yahweh. So someone can become an Israelite, if that makes sense. I, even, I think that's even true in the Old Testament. And you see this uh, in the Exodus. They, when they leave Egypt, they're a mixed multitude leaving Egypt which implies not just the Israelites leaving Egypt, but also many Egyptians who have probably believed in Yahweh by the signs that he's done, also leaving Egypt with the Israelites. So, yeah. So that would be uh, something I would see as distinct here, that, that Israel is not necessarily marked by ethnicity. But, um, yeah. Uh, this, the, from the text, the Romans 9, uh, verse 6, I think I stopped at verse 8, something like that. I mean, I've already, I think I would explain the position in general. I, I would just re-highlight the verses. So I would actually affirm largely what they just said. I think it's a little bit what they said and what I said earlier. I still have the distinction in mind if you look at verse um, 13 through 15. where it calls, chapter, yeah, cha- chapter 11. Sorry, Romans 11, verse 13 through 15, just to reiterate briefly. Um, because uh, they touch on other, other verses in the same, in the same chapter. So thir- 13 says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Um, and as much as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people. And he's talking about, I think, they're ethnic Israelites. Um, uh, he's certainly talking about a different people than the Gentiles, right? Uh, to envy and to save some of them. For if they're, i.e. his own people, rejection uh, uh, is the reconciliation of the world. What will be their acceptance but life from the dead? So I see a distinction there that Paul's, Paul's drawing between uh, a group of, of people defined by DNA, ethnically, and then the Gentiles. And then also in verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced, I think he's clearly talking about an ethnic people. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. And I want to be clear that, that he's, I affirm everything Tim said about Gentiles being grafted into Israel. Right? That's, he talks about that earlier. We are grafted into the promises of Israel in many profound and amazing ways. But Paul is talking here not about a people that's been grafted into that because he's talking about a hardening among a people. So, so if, if we as believers are grafted into something, that's not, we're not hardened, right? We're the believers. So now he's talking about a group of people who are hardened in, in there, and, that, and he's saying Israel is hardened until the full number of Gentiles has come in, i.e. grafted in, that we talked about, into the true Israel, the true branch. Mm-hmm. And then he says, and so all Israel will be saved. And I think that Israel he's talking about there is the exact same Israel he used in this sentence before, talking about his brethren, his ethnic DNA Israel brethren. So I'll leave it there. But, um, but again, affirm a lot of what they said. I think if you're, uh, th- that, that's probably a, a text worth hitting on. Um, the, so probably a hallmark or distinction between like a more covenantal view of the, the people of God and uh, a more dispensational view would be some of what was just articulated. Um, it, uh, another way to understand this, how I would read the same text, um, that the partial hardening has come upon ethnic Israel, something Paul is dealing with, the, Israel, the Israelites who are rejecting God. Mm-hmm. And that partial hardening exists until the fullness of the Gentile has come in. So Israel is partially hardened. Uh, as a mechanism for the Gentiles also to come in. You see this in Luke's Gospel and Acts, that uh, the Gospel is rejected by the Jews, and then the Gentiles are engrafted as a result of that. And then, he, and then he notes in verse 26, in this way, all Israel is saved. And I would say, I would take that second Israel, not to, again, refer, in this case, to ethnic Israel. I would say, he's saying, ethnic Israel has been hardened partially, and now the Gentiles are engrafted in. And in this way, those, that remnant of Israel and the Gentiles being engrafted in is the all Israel that has been saved. That makes sense. 
So just as Paul says, they're not all Israelites by descent, but by the promise. Here he's saying the ethnic Israelites have been hardened. There's still a remnant that believes and believes in the promises. Now the Gentiles are coming in as a result of that hardening. And the result of that is that the new Israel of God, all Israel, is saved. And they're now comprised of Gentiles and Jews together. So... Can I? Yeah, go. Yeah. Super small rebuttal. Yeah. Again, yeah. I love great. you, man. You're yeah, great. Yeah. Um, uh, so then in the next verse, so then he quotes an Old Testament passage, and then in verse 28, so all Israel mm-hmm. will be saved. Jump one verse ahead to verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they. So the question is, what is they there? I think they is then, again, ethnic Israel, whereas you're defining, that must be a jump back to ethnic Israel. Yeah, I think it's a jump back so to kind ethnic of, Israel. I think that's a difficult thing to move back and forth, but hey, it, yeah. it's, it's a, again, a possible way to interpret the passage. Hmm. And maybe, really quick, just the, the covenantal framework that maybe more Z and I would land in, the minority position would actually interpret this more like what Dave hmm. is saying, where this all is one flow of thought talking about ethnic Israel. And so that is a minority position in the covenantal framework, which at, at the end times he talked about this. It's more of a soft grafting in rather than hard grafting in, where there will be ethnic Jews coming to know and believe the gospel at the end of age, at the end of the age, whereas the more hard grafting in would view Israel similar to another nation state like Italy, where they're, they're no longer distinct. But the soft view is like, okay, they are still distinct um, in, in the view of God. So. And part of that is just to show a little bit of the hermeneutical difference in how you read, like flipping between Israel ethnic and then Israel corporate spiritual and then back to Israel ethnic. That would be the more covenantal reading. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of seeing in play how two different, it's not, those are not theological visions hopefully imposed on the text. That's not the goal. But what you're trying to do is say, what is the text getting after? And so you see kind of two different arguments that are being proposed. And then the job of every interpreter of scripture is to say, which of these is a better interpretation of the text? So, yeah. It's helpful in seeing that this conversation about Israel and the church, it actually spans the millennial perspective. It is more of this hermeneutical question of how do we understand the relationship between Israel and the church. So it's a little different in that way. In that category then, several people asked questions about, okay, so how, how does your view um, interpret what is happening in Israel right now, just the current events with Hamas and Israel and those sorts of things. Um, Does your reading and understanding of the church and Israel and prophecy, uh, how does that come to play on current events that are happening right now? Do you want to reverse the order or do you want to start, Tim? You can go. I'll try to be be brief. Uh, So the... Obviously, as a, as a pre-mill, I believe that the, the regathering of the people of Israel is, is, a, is a significant prophetic event that will eventually lead to their uh, turning to the Messiah. And, and that will lead to, you know, be part of his return, the resurrection of the dead, all of that. Um, this does not in any way mean that I support everything that Israel does as a nation, right? And nor should we, in the same way that we shouldn't just support anything that our government does in America. You have to be mindful and thoughtful about, about what is biblical that people are doing or not doing. In general, I do believe, I still believe the promise, uh, all the way back given to Abraham in, in Genesis 12 and 15, about those, um, you know, you'll be a blessing to nations, and those that bless you will be blessed. And so I do think there is a tie to being aligned with Israel generally and blessing them generally that will lead to blessings for you. But that is not um, something that I would say is like an absolute, so, so an extreme position. In, in no way should Christians support the, um, like Israel wiping out all people from the area and just taking the land and killing everyone indiscriminately. That, that would be, that'd be similar to some Old Testament commands when God told them to go and push the people out and, and take it. And in some, in some instances, told them to kill every man, woman, and child in a city, right? Israel is not under those commands today. Um, Israel is under, uh, everyone in the world is under uh, uh, the general Christian ethic. Even, there, even if you're a pagan, you're required to obey the general Christian ethic if you want to be aligned with God. And so... In the same sense, Israel would need to be under operating in what I would call a just war theory. If you guys are familiar with that term, there's a, there's a theological framework that's pretty robust in, in, in Christendom that says, when is it proper for Christians to engage in force and violence and conflict? And so that, that, that scaffold would be like just war theory. I believe Israel has to engage in that way if they want to be under a Christian ethic, which I think is the right thing to do. Um, maybe one or two other things to say about the situation. The situation in the Middle East, I believe, is unsolvable. 
um, there are two people groups that have unequivocal claims to the land, and they claim it through their scriptures. So Islam claims through Ishmael. They believe the promise came from Abraham through Ishmael, and they have the promise of the land. Like the promise that was given to Abraham, the land came through Ishmael, and it's, it's, that's their forefather. Jews feel the exact same way about the promise given through Isaac, right? And so there is no, and, and then obviously the hatred and the conflict and everything that's, that's been going on for over a thousand years, like I don't think, I don't see any solution except I do see a very brief period of peace that's brought about by someone who's, who is the Antichrist. But the only lasting peace that comes to that area is when Christ returns. And in that sense, I don't know that there's any but particularly productive way for Israel to engage with the terrorists in the region, except for to try to protect their people as best they can. Um, maybe I'll stop there. There's so much more to say on it. But. I think it's uh, a fraught issue because there's a lot of um, views that would say, like, uh, in any way to, con to condemn what Israel does is to outright reject Israel's claim to the land or things like that. Yeah. So I think, it's a, I I think yeah. these conversations are difficult because uh, sometimes you can say a small thing and people impute a larger meaning into what you're trying to get after. Um, I think uh, from more covenantal framework in this case, um, I would say that while ethnic Israel is a people in the land today, you know, they're, they're people who've been engrafted from by and large Europe and, and other places where they were scattered to in the destruction in 70 AD. Um, that's basically unprecedented in history, uh, the kind of nation state of Israel. Um, but I would say if, if the covenantal reading of the text is that Israel is, is hardened and the, Jew, the Gentiles are being grafted in and as a result of that all Israel is saved, um, how we view ethnic Israel today is not, not necessarily any different than how we would view Sweden or Germany or uh, Italy or, or a country like that that might need the gospel, might need to believe just as all, all men need to turn and believe on Christ. Um, so that would be kind of a distinction there. And maybe just double-clicking on the land aspect, right, where in the premillennial view it's that Israel will still inherit the promised land, right, where in the more covenantal view it's, in Romans 4.13, it says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, it's that the church will inherit the world. In that the church is the true children of Abraham through faith. And the promise in Genesis 12 that Abraham would inherit the land is now the church inheriting the world. And so there's less of a focus for Christians on the land, even though historically we see the Crusades happening and all of this stuff to, to sort of retake Jerusalem, that the covenantal view is, no, no, the land is the entire world. And then when that inheritance takes place would probably differ between Amil and Postmill a little bit. But, yeah. yeah. Some questions on this, and, and I think, Dave, you, you maybe mentioned it, so it'd be good to give the opportunity and maybe have started it already. Fleshing out more of the application. I know that was a section that I, we had to skip over a little bit just due to time. So give you the floor to talk more about that from... Um, yeah, so I'd say uh, a pre-mill, pre-trib person typically is someone who takes the Bible very seriously. It doesn't mean that these guys don't. They take it seriously too. Um, but, but, a, but someone who's pre-mill is someone who says, I, I have studied prophecy. I've looked at fulfillment. It seems very specific. And I see other prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled. I'm going to assume it's going to be just as specifically filled, fulfilled. And, um, and to come to that conclusion, I would say, requires kind of a deep study of the of prophetic and the prophetic fulfillment that's happened throughout Scripture. Um, it doesn't mean other, other viewpoints don't also study deeply, but I think maybe, maybe to other viewpoints may sometimes have more of a disposition to kind of gloss over prophecies and make them into more generalities about good and evil and God triumphing, as opposed to looking at specific details and saying, how were those maybe fulfilled historically? So there's definitely a, a, most pre-mills, pre um, if they, well, that know their position well and haven't just been adopted it from their parents or their church, is because they, they do have a very high view of scripture. Um, the, uh, maybe just a couple like simple examples. You know, in Exodus, when God tells them what to do in the Passover, he says, don't break, when you kill the Passover lamb, don't break the bone. Don't break any bone in, in the animal. Well, why did he say that? That's so specific and weird. Why, why did, did anyone know why he said that? Because Jesus didn't have a bone broken. It was a prophetic um, instance of saying something that would happen in the future. And so, and there's all the, those little details are just filled throughout the Old Testament. And, and so I encourage you to, to get into that kind of a study of Scripture. It's so, uh, it's so uh, enriching. Um, and it leads to an excitement to study the Old Testament. That was the other thing. I think there's a general, I kind of understand the New Testament, 
The Old Testament is just foreign and weird. And I just encourage y'all to get into it. It is There's so much riches in the Old Testament. Um, uh, certainly a, a pre-mill viewpoint will give you an appreciation for God's wrath because you see you read Revelation and you see the outpouring of God's wrath on this godless world. And uh, whether or not you have that position, you should have a real appreciation for God's wrath against sin. And that should lead you to holiness and to evangelism, to bring others to him. Um, and then obviously we talked about the, you have an appreciation for uh, that Israel is still the apple of God's eye in some way. And so you want to find ways to bring them to the Messiah and to bless them as a people. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is, again, not necessarily unique to my position, but certainly an appreciation for God's sovereignty. And I think in general, if you study prophecy and its fulfillment, you will see God's sovereignty every turn of the corner. Um, and, and so, yeah. It's, it's encouraging just how much of the application piece is shared. Across. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Pretty, that's pretty cool. Exactly. That's pretty cool, despite all of the, the textual differences. Uh, specific question for you two. How do the awe and post-mill uh, positions interpret Matthew 24, 40? Well, let's go there. I think some of you have already been victim to me on this. So. Uh, um, so, uh, if you, for those of you who just who are, we can't read all of chapter 24 of Matthew. Uh, it's a pretty dense prophecy that Jesus gives um, about, well, uh, some would say it's a, coming destruction prophecy that might telescope into the destruction of Jerusalem and then uh, kind of awaits a future kind of climactic judgment in a rebuilt Jerusalem, would that be fair? Mm -hmm. So, um, and then uh, I would say, I think kind of in that same vein as the preterist reading of Revelation, I would say this whole prophecy should be understood by a lot of the time statements um, in which uh, Jesus kind of opens the statement by saying, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So, um, I think that time statement kind of bounds a lot of how you have to understand these verses. But then uh, specifically verse 40 um, is referring to the, the flood in Noah's day, and it says, then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and the other left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day the Lord your God is coming. Um, and so this is uh, probably if you're familiar with or if you've grown up in a premillennial church, uh, this is clear reference to the rapture. The, the kind of secret taking of the believers. Um, what, I, what I think is difficult about that reading is uh, if, you, if you look at the Old Testament context for one taken and the other left, think about Israel exists in the promised land and Babylon comes in to destroy Israel and some are taken and some are left. Now, who are the blessed ones in that situation? The ones who are left are the blessed ones. They're the ones who've been left behind in the land. The ones who've been taken, like Daniel, they're taken into exile, most likely castrated and made lifelong eunuchs. So the taken ones are the ones who are being judged in the taking, and the ones who are left are the ones who are left behind. Um, so I don't think it refers to some kind of a secret rapture. I think it's referring to what happens in the destruction of the temple, where those who are taken are the ones who are taken and scattered across the world. And there are some who are left to kind of pick up the pieces behind. Not a great situation, but certainly better than being removed from your land, home, and family and scattered across, across the world. So Maybe I just add here from the text itself, verse 39, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. So the flood, judgment, right, swept them away. And so when you see this idea of taken, taken, swept away, it's the same thing. It's, it's judgment language. Is it fair to give that? Is that normally a rapture reading in the, the pre yeah, 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 I'm okay. sure yeah. the question is asked because the, the I mean, the pre-mill viewpoint, again, kind of like takes passages very much at face value. Like, okay, yeah, someone's going to be taken, like disappear, They'll be taken. So, yeah. What does the 144,000 of Israel mean in Revelation? I start that. You're more than welcome to, yeah. I think I'll, we'll all want to crack it at yeah. some point. So. <laughs> so in Revelation chapter 7, and then briefly again in chapter 14, um, we see this ceiling of 144,000 of, and it lists the tribes of Israel. And we won't go through the whole thing, but probably in your Bible, you can see it really clear, like 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. And so the question is, all right, who are 
the 144,000. Is this a literal 144,000? Is it symbolic but referring to ethnic Israel and these specific tribes? Um, or is it maybe just the people of God overall represented by these whole complete numbers? And so in, in the more covenantal view, we see this in context at the end of chapter 6. It's for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That's the question. Who can stand? And we see then this sealing taking place of the people of God. And this goes back to Ezekiel, uh, I think it's 8 or 9, where the Lord actually, before the judgment comes, he sends someone to seal and mark out those who are his own, those who are going to be taken from the wrath, who will not experience the wrath on non-believers, but will actually be protected by the Lord's hand. And so we see this as a, a theme of protection, sovereign protection over the people of God. And then the question is, okay, is this going to be actual ethnic Israel or is this, this the church? I think what's helpful here is Revelation 14, when again, in the amillennial position, this is a repetitive speaking of the same event, the same idea, right? Where in Revelation 14, it talks about in verse... Yes, but... Well, it basically says mankind. Some here. Hmm. Yes, they've been. Thank you, Shani. They have been redeemed from mankind. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I would view this not as ethnic Israel. This is a global church. They've been redeemed from all mankind, being protected. So, mm -hmm. appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Is Luke? Oh. What? Square oh, that was Luke. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, do you want to take your crack at it? Uh, I mean, I can go so further if you want to. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I'll, finish. Um, I'll be brief. I, th I think uh, one thing that's difficult for if, if you insist that the 144,000 are Israel specifically, uh, one thing that's difficult is in this list of the 12 tribes, one tribe is missing that was included in the first set of 12 tribes. Um, the tribe of Dan is just not in this list. Um, and the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, which are the two sons of Joseph, are included together as just the tribe of Joseph. So this doesn't match the historical tribe allotments that we see, for example, given in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. So I think that's difficult for seeing it as literal Israel. Um, the other thing I would say is there's a pattern that is used in Revelation to introduce sa the same concept, and it's a difference between hearing and, and seeing. So for instance, if you look, uh, for example, back in Revelation uh, 4, um, or sorry, Revelation 5, um, you have uh, John who's got this vision of, of the throne. And uh, if you look in verse 6 of chapter 5, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it has been slain. So he sees a lamb, right? But if you were to go a couple verses earlier, for example, to verse, uh, uh, verse 3, um, uh, you see, uh, there's no one on heaven or earth or under the earth that was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, so he hears, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, is conquered. So he hears about a lion, he looks and he sees a lamb. Now, no one's saying those are two different references. We would all say that's Christ. But he hears about the lion, he sees the lamb. So he hears something different than he sees, but we're saying it's the same thing. Now, you have the same pattern in Revelation chapter 7. Um, after this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners, and then they're numbering the 144,000. And then, uh, and, he, and he hears about them. I heard the number sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the son of Israel. This, that's in verse 4 of chapter 7. And then in verse 9, and I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne. So he hears something different than he sees. And I would say just like the lion and the lamb, he hears something different than he sees. That doesn't mean he's talking about two different things. He's hearing and seeing the same thing from two different angles. On the one hand, a lion. On the other hand, a lamb. On the one hand, 144,000 of Israel. On the other hand, people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. They're the same image being superimposed. So, Yeah, I mean, uh, very briefly, the you know, pre-mill viewpoint on this, the pre-trib, pre-mill, or pre-wrath, pre-mill view is just going to be that this is Israel. This is the, um, after the rapture, there is a return of Israel to Christ. Um, as as I meant, we talked about in Romans, I believe that they do come to him. They, come, they, they find him as their Messiah right around the time of his return. And uh, to the specifics about Dan not being in there, it's, it's an interesting point, and I don't have a, a 
you know, I don't know why Dan isn't in there. Um, there is some speculation uh, that I've jotted in my notes. I won't, I won't uh, bother with you now. But, uh, but I, the numbers themselves, I don't want to mention something about the numbers themselves. So there's, you can interpret numbers symbolically or more literally. And there are certainly some numbers that it's very difficult to say what is the literal interpretation of that number. But I would say there are many numbers that we see prophetically throughout Scripture where we have a literal fulfillment to them. And so I'm always open to the idea of it being a literal fulfillment. I won't, I'm not going to like put my flag on that ground, but I'm certainly open to it, um, mm -hmm. that God has somehow tracked. He obviously knows everyone's DNA, that he, that he has tracked the DNA of Israelites and that he will, he will literally um, hold aside 12,000 from people that have the DNA from these tribes at this time. Um, so, and then the multitude, um, I, I do think that's a, that's a turning point where that's actually he's talking about a different group of people um, in, verse, in verse 9. He says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. Um, and so that's, the, uh, that's from every tribe, every people, and language. So that's all the ethnos, that's all the Gentiles that have, that have come in. So that's how a, a pre-mill would, would interpret that. Let's, let's stay in this conversation. How, how, how do we determine whether something is symbol or natural, literal? Yeah. How, how do we do that? Um, the, maybe I'll let's go this way. Yeah, so, I think you'll um, say the same thing as I, I will. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. the, the, so I would say one of the four prophetic principles I think we should abide by um, is this concept of symbolic precision. And that means that I think symbols, while they are symbols, so there's a lamb spoken about in here. Is Jesus a lamb? No, Jesus isn't a lamb, but the lamb represents Jesus. The lamb doesn't represent some broader concept. The lamb represents a specific thing. The dragon represents the Antichrist. Um, there, there are so many um, symbols in this, and I would say the, the foundation for that type of understanding will come from Daniel. A reading of Daniel, I believe this, Daniel's filled with symbols. It's very much like Revelation. It's very apocalyptic and um, it's prophecy and filled with these types of symbols like beasts and, you know, multi-headed creatures and blah, 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 right? But each of those had, I believe, a specific one-to-one -one connection with a physical reality, like a, like a nation, right? So the four, he talks about four nations. He talks about four sections of this statue, right? That's the first vision in Daniel. Each of those sections represents a, a literal a nation. Then he talks about four beasts. Each of those beasts represents a literal nation. So that kind of symbolic precision is the way that I interpret scripture in general. And then I would say numbers, um, back to just there are so many numbers that also had a specific literal fulfillment um, between uh, when the prophecy was given and the fulfillment of that prophecy. So I'll stop there. Um, I agree with that. I think context obviously matters and that's probably a basic answer, but it, it really does matter. For example, the Lord is king over the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, he's king over the cattle on the thousand and first hill too. And so you just have to understand, like, what is the point the author, the text is trying to make, right? What is the actual point? And then that helps you determine, okay, is it literal, symbolic? This next question, it's not really a millennial question, so anyone can feel free, whoever wants to put on their church historian hat. Uh, has there been a predominant view of the millennial reign over church history. Um, if there has, what has that been? What has it looked like? Or have we seen a distinct development of that thought? What's, what's been the, the trajectory of the, the church's understanding over the past 2,000 years? Well, I don't think, I, at least as far as regards the early church, um, Revelation is almost not included in the canon because of debates about um, how do you exactly interpret the millennial prophecy? And I think what ends up happening is the Kyleists, which would be what we would call today premillennialists, some, some premillennial view, is strongly advocated for by some of the church fathers that you can go and read about. Um, it would probably be a little bit distinct from what we would say today as a dispensational premillennial reading, but you have a kind of premillennial premillennialism present, and they're the ones who actually argue and kind of get revelation into the canon. Some of them make some pretty persuasive arguments to that effect. However, uh, it's notably absent from all of the creeds and confessions, uh, any real statement on the timing of the millennium or its character. All that the creeds say is something like, he will come again to judge living and the dead. And that's about as far as they go on the character of the millennium. So I, I think that that, at least in the early church, is proof that there's not really a prevailing enough viewpoint where they think this is clear cut. Mm -hmm. I can't really speak to the rest of church history. So. <laughs> I'd say, I'd say, the only other notes that I would say I remember about this is Amil was more popular earlier on 
for sure, I think in the, in the third and fourth century. And then uh, the pre-mill viewpoints had a lot, a lot of uh, steam behind it in the 1800s, right? So pretty recently. Uh, and then there's been some, in the last couple of decades, there's been some back and forth between some of these. So, you know, more generally, I don't know that I would uh, say you should, you know, get your beliefs about, your decision about which view to believe based on when they were believed throughout church history. I don't think that's going to be too helpful in this, in this such situation. Uh, for instance, I, I mentioned in my talk, the Puritans are by and large post-millennial. However, their kind of post-millennialism is by and large very different from the kind of post-millennialism people would argue for today. Their post-millennialism is very much rooted in the undiscovered new world, um, kind of a national culture of Christians that's kind of being established in this new land, and them envisioning a golden era that they are now partaking in. So Jonathan Edwards and others saw themselves as being part of ushering in the millennium, this golden reign. Um, because they're living right in the middle of the revivals and Wesley and all these people coming to Christ. And so, so they're technically post-millennial, so they would, let's say, on branding, look like they would agree with me. But I would say I think I would differ fundamentally on a lot of their characterization of what that millennium must look like. So even going historically and trying to say, here's an on-mill, here's a post-mill, here's a pre-mill, is a little bit of a, a, I don't know, a really difficult task. Because those terms aren't really being used consistently throughout the church history. From what I've understood, too, the on-mill and the post-mill were pretty intertwined until the early 1900s, right? And then they started splitting off more? They didn't, uh, people, they didn't really have to distinguish yeah. themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was really actually, so I mentioned post-mill liberalized. So amillennial were the conservative ones who wanted to hold kind of that still post-mill hermeneutic. So you have guys like B.B. Uh, Warfield and others who are amillennial readers of the text, very optimistic amillennial readers of the text, but they're distinguishing themselves from the liberal post-millennials. And, uh, and the premillennials are the ones who are basically holding on to the inerrancy of scripture, and uh, that's kind of how those groups are starting to emerge from one another. So postmillennialism really went through a, a really dark time for a long time, so, yeah. Quick time Doesn't check. make it false. Was there, a, is, is there like a stop questions at a certain time, or we go until? Um, I would say my hard cutoff is seven, so, okay. yeah. Cool. I'm good uh, for whatever. Yeah. Quick, there's more on here, but I, I wanted to give an opportunity if anyone maybe didn't write something in and, or has developed a new question just in the past few minutes, uh, an audience live, if, if you like. <laughs> and if not, then I'll consult my phone. No, okay. Oh. I was going to ask how many questions you well, there's a good number, but a lot of them are just the same question worded differently. So, yeah. Yeah. I can't, can't, you can probably see my question better, but can you just restate what you can about the Sunday years from post Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Eliana had asked me in the break a little bit about um, how do we view the telescope, because you mentioned telescoping prophetic in, in your talk, yeah, prophetic yeah. telescoping. Yeah. And so, the, I think the question was something, how does that apply to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and... And kind of emanating from there. Post-millennial view, like why is that an issue of if it's written after some maybe before? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd say so. Uh, I think telescoping is true. I think though there might be a lot of commonality here. I don't know that the prophecy in Revelation or the prophecies kind of at the end of Daniel, which I, th I take them kind of to be talking about the same things. I don't know that they are necessarily telescoping. So I think some prophecies do telescope. Um, but I think there are some that we would see like literal precision on, and those ones are hard to telescope. So like in the book of Daniel, uh, from basically the whole book has like kind of these prophecies laced out, and as you see them being fulfilled in the book of Daniel, they don't necessarily reduplicate themselves. They're kind of one prophetic thought. So you have one empire comes, is destroyed, another empire comes, is destroyed, another empire comes, is destroyed, and there's this fourth empire kingdom, uh, which is where the pre-mill and post-mill would disagree about what is that fourth kingdom exactly. But uh, we wouldn't say that that prophecy kind of endlessly telescopes into the future. So then the question is, what's that fourth kingdom? I think that fourth kingdom is Rome, particularly culminating in Nero and Titus, who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD and uh, commit all those atrocities there. Um, but I would say that, that because all the other ones are being fulfilled very literally in specific kingdoms and kings, that that one has to also kind of follow that pattern. So I don't know if that, that one telescopes. Can I take a minute and just make sure we're all on the same page of what prophetic telescoping is? So um, it's the concept that when a prophet got a vision from God, he may have seen things very close, and he also may have seen things very far away in the same vision. 
And so there may be a large time gap and he doesn't see that. And so he's just writing what he's, what he's seeing or what he's hearing. And some of it gets fulfilled at some period of time and then the rest of it doesn't. And so uh, the pre-male view and other views too would say, okay, the rest of that's gotta be fulfilled at some future date. And so let me just go to a, a good example for this for you. So go to Luke um, 4. This is a really good one to illustrate the point. <clears throat> so in Luke 4, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61. So Luke 4, verse 18. Um, so, well, maybe I'll back up a little bit. He goes into the synagogue, as was Jesus' custom, and he stands up to read, and the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. And he says, um, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, in verse 21. Mm -hmm. And so I think we would all agree, yeah, Jesus is fulfilling that scripture. That's why he read that. But let's go to Isaiah 61 now. So Jesus is just reading Isaiah 61. So Isaiah 61, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, the release of darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's exactly what Jesus just read. But then Jesus stopped. Isaiah's vision goes on. The very next sentence says, And the day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't Jesus read that sentence? Because... Well, we believe that that, that vengeance is in the future. The, that the wrath, well, at least the pre-mill viewpoint says, that's prophetic telescoping. Mm -hmm. Isaiah was just writing down what he's getting. Jesus stopped where he fulfilled that day when he said, today this is, but he didn't keep reading because the next part of this is, is his second coming. Mm -hmm. And there are many passages throughout your um, Bible, and I'd, I'd encourage you, I actually have done this in mind. Whenever you see a prophecy about Jesus' first coming in, in the prophets or the minor prophets, whatever, write J1, in your, in your margins, and whenever you see one about a second coming, write J2. And you'll see that a lot of them are mashed together. And, you, know, you know, concepts about a second coming versus first are just overlapping and right on top of each other. That's the concept of prophetic telescoping. Sorry, that was a little bit long. A helpful analogy for this is like, if you're, I don't know where I heard this, but if you're standing in a, a soccer field and you're at like the corner kick spot and you're looking directly down at the goalpost, someone says like, describe the goalpost, you're gonna describe one column and then if you walk towards it and then walk around it, now you see there's two because they were lined up exactly. And so they, they saw the one, described it, but really there was two separate goalposts. That actually, I like what you said there. And I would say that's actually another concept that I would talk about is called partial or dual fulfillment prophecy, where you see part of a prophecy that gets fulfilled, but it's like not all fulfilled, but it's like a type that gets, it's like close, but not totally there. And a pre-mill viewpoint would say, okay, there's going to be another future fulfillment that gets it all. Maybe 80% of it was in Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel, but not all of it. So there must be an Antichrist that's going to fulfill all of it. That kind of thing. And, and he could be Nero, you know. We know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he already did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe Nero was another shadow. Another shadow. And there's another yeah. shadow. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, we would all agree with the principle of yeah. prophetic telescoping. I think to be a Christian, you have to, because this is a common, uh, a common accusation of Jewish believers against Christians, yeah. is to say, well, Christ came, uh, and where is the knowledge of the world covering the earth as the waters cover the sea? That This is expected in the Messianic reign. And a Christian would say, well, it, it, he telescopes. In his first coming, he inaugurates the start of this process, but either it takes a long time to fulfill post-millennial, or it's coming again in, in the future in a kind of climactic way. But to be a Christian, you have to have a telescoping view of prophecy. You cannot insist that this all must happen in one go, or else yeah. patently Jesus is not the true Messiah. Right. So. Which is why the Jews largely reject him. They say yeah. he didn't fulfill all these, yeah. all these prophecies, all these promises. He didn't bring them. He didn't bring, he didn't take Rome down. He didn't bring political, you know, uh, dominance. So, yeah. yeah. This is a fun question, personal question. What was the process uh, to arrive at uh, this position? Uh, what was that like? 
I, I think I went on the most climactic journey, so I'll, I'll start with my own. I, I grew up uh, going to a church that was um, premillennial, dispensational in its view. I remember when I was in high school listening to a sermon series through the book of Revelation, really basically agreeing with everything my pastor said. Um, and it wasn't until later in college, like junior or senior year, when I started, um, not, I, w I wouldn't say like reading it for the first time, I was taking notes during that you know, sermon series and thinking about it. But um, I, during that time, junior and senior year of college, I bumped into a Ligonier set of videos by R.C. Sproul called The Last Days According to Jesus. And he deals with not the last days according to Isaiah or other prophetic texts, although he would say they're important. Um, but his concern was specifically that the liberal scholars today would say Jesus was a false prophet because he says, a, he tells of a prophecy that has to happen in a certain time period, this generation, and that prophecy does not take place. Mm -hmm. So R.C. Sproul and others have asked the question, well, what if that prophecy did take place and we were just looking for this climactic kind of prophecy when really it was a, a more felt visceral prophecy of the destruction? Mm -hmm. And so this is Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. And the question is, is Jesus talking about something that happens in his generation, i.e. the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, or is he talking about something to come thousands of years in the future? And so that kind of led me to saying, well, I think what Jesus is talking about is a time frame constrained prophecy. And once you see those time frame constraints, it kind of, it really does shape how you're going to start reading some of those other prophecies. So that's kind of what shaped me into this. Yeah. Yeah. So I also grew up very pre-mill. I read uh, Tim LaHaye Left Behind more than I read probably the Bible, honestly. <laughs> and uh, hence, my eschatology was whatever Tim LaHaye said in his fictional book. Um, and if you haven't read Left Behind, very, very good um, and fun, but don't use that as your eschatology. Um, it, it, from a like non-biblical sense, right? Not not necessarily. I, I, that that I wasn't a direct attack. I disagree about a lot in, in, in okay, Left Behind. Fair. From what I know, I haven't read them, but I've, I've heard different things that I disagree with, for okay, sure. Fair. Um, and so... With that being said, um, as I've sort of like just read scripture and listened, I mean, R.C. Sproul's like the last days according to Jesus have been a big influence. More the, the covenantal reading of scripture has become my conviction, but um, maybe surprise, surprise, I'm not there yet. So I would lean on mill, but I'm not yet there as far as that versus post mill. And so my journey is not yet complete. And so I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I will say a study of the book of Daniel, a deep study of the book of Daniel in my early 20s. Um, I just encourage you all to study the prophecies of Daniel. Mm -hmm. yeah. Who is the restrainer? Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> That's my question. <laughs> I submitted it so immediately when I had the opportunity. I'll, I'll orient everyone ago. to the text. So it, I, I think it's specifically mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Yep. Um, so there's two parallel passages, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verses 13 and following, I think 13 to 18, and then 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, and what Paul is doing, he's talking about this day of the Lord and resurrection kind of moment, okay? So I'll read the restrainer text, and then we can talk about it. Um, so this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know that what is now restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. For this mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Uh, I'll stop. I mean, obviously, there's a longer passage there, but for the sake of time, that's the restrainer text that we're talking about. Who is he? I, all right, I'll, 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 throw, I'll, I'll throw one interpretation out there. Uh, this is the one I find compelling, um, and then I'll let these guys rebuke me for it. So, um, so uh, keep in mind, I think all of these prophecies are by and large dovetailing together. So the coming day of the Lord, um, this, this one who's, a re who's rebelling, uh, all of these things. Uh, uh, Paul writes first and second Thessalonians probably early on in his ministry, uh, probably in like the early 50s, maybe uh, 
as, as he's traveling in his missionary journeys. And the problem on the ground in First and Second Thessalonians is uh, some false teachers are convincing the Christians in Thessalonica that the day of the Lord has already passed, the resurrection has already happened, there's nothing to look forward to. And so uh, as a result of that, they're basically giving themselves over to lawlessness, they're not working, they've kind of like quit their jobs, and they're just kind of chilling. They're not waiting faithfully for the day of the Lord. And so Paul says a couple of time markers here. He says, first, let no one deceive you in any way that the day will not come. Uh, let no one deceive you in any way, right? This has not happened yet. And don't let people deceive you that it has happened yet. And he gives a couple of markers for what to expect when the day of the Lord comes. He says, first, there must be a rebellion. This man of lawlessness must be revealed. And this man of lawlessness is marked by opposing himself, exalting himself against every so-called God or object of worship, taking his seat in the temple of God. That's all language from Daniel 11, uh, referring to, um, well, uh, it's either referring to Antiochus Epiphanes and then telescoping to someone else, or it's referring to a second king uh, who's mentioned kind of in the same flow of thought with Antiochus Epiphanes, who would be either a future Antichrist, uh, as some would say. I would say this is talking about Nero. He sits in the, he, he elevates himself. Actually, Nero uh, actually seeks to, in, in roughly 68 AD, right before he goes and tries to destroy Jerusalem, he has his people bring in a temple, uh, a statue of himself, and try to put it in the Jerusalem temple. So he, he fulfills some of these expectations. Um, and this one uh, is proclaiming himself to be God. Uh, you have emperor worship taking place at this time in, in Rome. And uh, what's now restraining him, so this is not happening yet in Paul's day, and what's now restraining him is the fact that Nero is not on the throne. There's another emperor on the throne. And so he's being restrained from his ability to carry out this rebellion and lawlessness by the fact that there's another emperor on the throne and Nero has not yet taken his place. But when this restrainer leaves, so this other emperor who's in place, uh, then Nero comes and rebels and then uh, does all these atrocities. So that, that's one interpretation. I'm not telling you that's <laughs> the final word on that at all. Uh, I think our professor, when we were going through this text in Pauline Theology said, if anyone tells you with certainty they know who the restrainer is, they're probably lying. So, um, I agree. Yeah. Tim, go ahead, man. I have no view, so I will, I will skip. Um, so I love your comment, referencing back to Daniel. Absolutely. Um, study Daniel. I should mention, I have, I have a seven-hour teaching on Daniel. If yeah. I want. <laughs> Tim, yeah. listen to it. Yeah. So uh, if you want that, I, I, it's, all, it's all online. I'm happy to send it to anyone who wants to, to dive into the prophecies of Daniel. But um, uh, so the, the more typical pre-mill view on this is that the restrainer would be the Holy Spirit through the church. And so the rapture is when that restrainer is removed from the earth. Um, I actually think that the restrainer is more likely Michael the archangel. And so that's a reference again to Daniel. Uh, Michael the archangel acts as a restrainer a couple of times in the book of Daniel. Um, and Michael the archangel is the protector of Israel. Uh, I believe, again, ethnic Israel. He's kind, of, he's kind of assigned to them to protect them. And so I think that it's likely that Michael the archangel is the restrainer that is removed here that, that allows the Antichrist to be ushered in. Uh, this text and 1 Thessalonians 4 are two of the texts that would contribute to also a rapture understanding of the, yes. of the uh, millennium. So a, a pre-tribulation kind of rapture. So. Looking to see what would be a good untouched subject here. Maybe uh, just a little more. The rapture obviously has been brought up a number of occasion. Uh, specifically, I think the, the awe mill and the post mill, there's... Okay, do you, do you believe in a rapture? Uh, where does that fit into your understanding of things? Uh, I'll throw myself on the sword. No, I don't believe in a future coming secret rapture. I think the rapture language, as I tried to show it out of the text of Matthew 24, 40, is language of the people being taken are being tackled, taken in judgment, uh, in exile, not being taken secretly to be gathered with the Lord. Um, that First Thessalonians uh, 4 text, uh, if you wanted to turn there, another text that deals with the rapture, First Thessalonians 4, um, 13. Uh, it speaks of a resurrection, those who have fallen asleep, uh, this kind of longing and expectation. Uh, and then it says, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now this language, uh, other scholars have observed this, is not the Christians being taken away into the clouds and then living in the clouds with God. Um, this is a king announcing that he's coming to the earth. And so the Christians are gathered together to welcome him to, his, to the earth as he comes in to reign. Um, and so they're, they're gathered together with him in the clouds, but they're coming at, all together back down to earth to inaugurate that reign. So 
It's, um, it's procession language. It's language where the, the king comes over the city and the world that he has just conquered, and he's proclaiming his reign. And so the saints come and welcome him in, just like you see um, in Luke 19, where all the Jews gather around the city of Jerusalem and welcome Jesus into the city, throwing palm branches before him and saying, Hosanna to the king of kings. They're not hanging out outside of the city after that. They're welcoming him into the city to reign over the city. So it's, it's that same kind of concept that's playing out in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's another example, too, of like how you view what Brian walked through at the beginning, these, these four sort of pillars, the second coming of Christ, resurrection, judgment, new heavens and new earth, that the more covenantal reading views those all happening at the same time, right? And so when we see here that the dead in Christ will rise first, that's resurrection language, that there's Christ's second coming, resurrection, all these things, that is bringing about the new heavens and new earth, right? So it's not a rapture out of the earth, it's a restoration of the earth because we see all of that language happening here. Uh, no, I mean, you already know kind of probably what, what a pre-mill thinks of that. that. Just to point out the words caught up there, that is the word rapture in Latin. It's raptus in Latin. So, that, so the word rapture is a biblical word. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just we, we're not using the Greek word I think is, there is harpazo, harpazo. So you can say that instead of rapture if you wanted to. But it's a real word. And the question is, what does it mean? So, yeah. But some people will say rapture doesn't show up in the Bible. It does show up in the Bible. Specific post-mill question, when was Satan bound? Uh, I, I believe Satan was bound in Christ's first coming in his earthly ministry. Uh, he says in several places in Luke, uh, if you see me casting out demons by the finger of God, know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I think that as the gospel goes forward, Satan is bound. He's no longer able to deceive the nations, which were previously deceived by Satan, by the strong man. Paul says as much in Ephesians, that you were once led astray by the prince of the power of the air, but now you have been freed, freed into this new uh, gospel kingdom. Um, and so I think Satan was bound there. And it, a key part of that passage, one that uh, pre-mills and uh, post-mills and amills will often point to, is it doesn't say Satan was bound full stop, is he was bound so that he could no longer deceive the nations. And so a postman will say he was bound in Christ's first coming. He continues to remain bound today. I think that there is some future time in which he will be unbound for this kind of like final attempted rebellion. But as you'll notice, that battle isn't really mentioned in Revelation 20. In fact, it says that they gather together against God and they're destroyed by the breath of his mouth uh, by fire coming down from heaven. So it's not really a fight. It's more like a just visceral destruction of the annihilation. Yeah. yeah. We've got a live audience question, yeah. Jared. How does that reconcile with like we don't battle flesh and blood, but we battle like principalities and that kind of stuff, or does it? Um, I, I, th- I think uh, what Paul says there is true that we don't battle with like you know uh, swords, swords uh, political votes, things like that. We're not our weapons are not carnal; they are spiritual. We're engaged in a spiritual fight, but I think it, it's. Obvious in Scripture that spiritual realities do impact the physical world. Think about demon possession and the affliction it causes to one who is demonically possessed. Think about sin as a non-physical reality that breaks relationships, breaks marriages, breaks all kinds of situations in the world, breaks families apart. Um, so I think spiritual realities do tangibly impact the physical world in which we live. Um, but what Paul's saying there is, don't be foolish enough to think that if you treat the symptom, you treat the you treat the cause. He's saying you have, to, you have to battle it at the level in which it's happening, which is at the spiritual level. And that should lead to, obviously, a felt change as well in, in life. If you have someone who's repenting of their sin, that should also lead them to obey Christ. You know, you, I, don't, I think it's inconsistent for someone to say, I'm spiritually battling my sin, but giving over to it physically every day. Right? So, but our weapons are to battle it at the spiritual level. So. Can I say, oh, let me, I just want to answer on that. I do think this is a pretty strong argument for the pre-mill viewpoint, the idea of Satan being bound, um, because I think there are some passages in Scripture that indicate Satan has pretty strong reign right now. And that's kind of the, and again, not, not that, it's, that your interpretation is wrong, but at least a couple passages for your consideration. So 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there is some God of this age that is blinding the minds of masses of people. If Satan is bound, can he do that? Maybe. But it seems, it seems um, you know. And then there's another one. Uh, um, I'm blanking on it right now. I'm sure you guys will tell me. But that Satan, Satan masquerades as an angel of light to deceive. 
and then another one that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, is he really bound? So you have to, you have to piece those together somehow and, and come up with an explanation that bridges that gap. I don't know if you guys want to speak to that. Yeah, I think Z does a good job of talking about this a lot, where a bad argument will often um, torpedo what could be the right point. And so if, in talking about Dave's, all those valid texts, when the Amiller, the postmill talks about Satan being bound and they don't define what that means properly, you're left saying, oh, well, you're contradicting yourself because Satan does prowl around like a roaring lion. He, he does masquerade an angel of light. So, much authority yes, over world. Yeah. 100%. And so like defining what bound means, which like he said, isn't completely bound, but much diminished power is important because we see 100% with 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that the God of this age has blinded the eyes of non-believers. But if you go to verse 6, it says, For God, said, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So through Christ, what used to be complete darkness for the Gentile world at a high level is now being, light, the light of Christ is shining on them. And so there's, there's a battle, there's a spiritual battle, but it is an overcoming of Satan by the light of Christ is what I would say. That yes, Satan bound, he's bound, he's also still prowling around, but the gospel is overcoming his power. Yeah, uh, I got a question I, for you, Dave. Obviously, every view, there's different distinctives in different camps. Yeah, Could yeah. you distinguish between the premillennial dispensational versus the premillennial historical? And what yeah. would be like the main distinctives, differences between those two? Yeah, uh, if, I'm, if I'm right, so the historical view is going to say that most of the uh, prophecies in Revelation have, have been fulfilled historically or leading up to. Is that, is that correct on the historical? Uh, like not necessarily like a historist approach to Revelation. Oh, not historist. Uh, yeah. Okay, do you know the, the uh, original historical? I think the primary difference is that uh, they would be, let's say, uh, you would probably term it replacement theologians. They would say that the church yeah. is uh, not supplanting, but the church is the natural continuation of Israel, and then everything else in terms of the literal thousand years, all those kinds of things are still to come. But it's not Israel, it's the church mm -hmm. that is uh, on the receiving end of those blessings. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's more. That's a, within the Reformed camp, within the Covenantal viewpoint. Sure. There's a position called historical premillennial, which would read. Like a John Piper, Jim Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. SBTS guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I may need to read some more. There's a historicist, and I'm, I'm mixing that in yeah. histor um, historical. Yeah. Um, what I would say is certainly, I believe there's still a special uh, place for Israel, right? Sure. But but that doesn't. In, in some ways, it's very much a both and for me, right? Yeah. So the idea of like even Israel having the land, I think Gentiles will live in the land too, just in the way that in the Old Testament, Gentiles were grafted into Israel and became Israelites in that sense. So um, I don't, I'm not saying there's like going to be some massive distinction between be Israel, be Israelite believers and Gentile believers in, in the millennial reign. I think there'll be very much a, a communion and a sharing and all that between them, yeah. Do, which, like, as like a dispensational, then, like, kind of listening to that, it kind of sounds like, as Gentiles are grafted in, that we, like, would we call ourselves, like, even though they're, like, we're distinct as, like, Christians and Israelites, it sounds like we're being, like, grafted into, like, the Israelites. Like, it sounds like we're being, like, grafted into, like, ethnic Israel. Into the promises of true Israel, I would say. We we're grafted into the promises that were given to true Israel. Um, uh, so, we don't become Israelites. We don't have to circumcise ourselves, right, to be to be um, part of those promises. Uh, but uh, the question is, are there some promises that that were expanded to all Gentiles, and then other promises that were given to specific people that will be fulfilled with those specific people? And that's at least that's the way I kind of I view I view those passages. Yeah. Any last live audience? Okay. Uh, then the last question. Everyone can 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 answer or however you feel led. What would be one one piece of advice that you would offer uh, to encourage Christians to uh, to unity in the face of diverse opinions on these kinds of issues? You mentioned the four kind of distinctives. We all go to align on that, mm -hmm. right? Um, as long as we're there, this is an intramural discussion. And there are good arguments for each position. And I would guarantee that all of us are at least partially wrong. So, so uh, that's important to keep in mind, have humility about this. One of the things I love, I love mentioning this, Isaac Newton 
Uh, we all know Isaac Newton as the scientist, right? One of the most brilliant men of all time. He wrote more about the Bible than he did about science. Not that all this stuff was orthodox, but he cared about the Bible. And uh, one of the things he, wrote, he said was that God gave us prophecy, not just so that we could tell the future, but so that once the future happened, we would know that God knew beforehand and, uh, and that he brought it to pass. And that's really, the, I think, the spirit we need to have, this a humility about future prophecy um, and an understanding that God will bring it all to pass. And when we look back, it'll all make perfect sense. I think one big area of unity that I've appreciated a lot uh, in seeing, um, if you just look at the reality of um, missions across the world and how the, the kingdom goes forth, um, people who disagree much in terms of uh, eschatology, pre-mill, amill, and post-mill, um, that doesn't necessarily prevent them from sharing the gospel and collaborating together on that. And I think that there's a kind of uh, unhelpful um, elitism to think that if I have my position ironed out and I could, I could beat someone else in an argument with X position, therefore I'm more theological, more spiritual, or more, um, more biblical, right? Uh, these positions all, I, I mean, as you probably notice in the applications, all the applications should actually tend you towards the same direction, reading the word, appreciating the word, appreciating characteristics of God, um, and, and loving him for it and responding in obedience. Um, those are all consistent across kind of the spectrum. And so I think that there's much more in common with those who would say, let's study the text and reason from it together than there would be disunity on that. So, yeah. I think this aspect of, of unity is not as exciting of a subject. If we had a discipleship night on church unity, I'm guessing it would not be as packed, <laughs> right? Because divisive subjects tend to attract more attention. And yet we have to acknowledge that Christ loves a united bride. He loves a united church. And so we can see in how we respond to these debates whether we're trying to please God or man, in that the people who please man want to be proven right. They want to divide unnecessarily. But the more we want to please God, I think the more we're able to parse out when fighting is necessary or when unity is um, able to be accomplished and should be actually pursued zealously. And that maybe the last thing to note is, is Unity doesn't require necessarily the exact same convictions all the time. This is an example of unity mm. in that mm. none of you know Dave, and yet we are united to Dave through much more in common than we have disagreements, mm -hmm. right? And so um, I just think delighting in what God delights in will enable us to respond appropriately to some of these discussions. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Johnny, yeah. do you want to close us in prayer? Yeah.